Welcome to episode five of the On The Way podcast, uh, a new podcast promoting a compassionate, inclusive, non-dualistic Christian faith. My guests today are, as usually uh, joining us on the show, the very Reverend Dr. Peter Cat. Welcome back from your travels, Peter. Uh, Thanks, Dom. Great to be here. Good time away? Yeah, brilliant time. Thank you. Experienced lots of beauty. Yes, which is, uh, I guess, the, the aim of any good trip, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Um, and uh, joining us, Peter, to talk about an issue very close to your heart today is uh, Reverend Dr. Kerry Wynne. Uh, welcome, Kerry. Thank you, Don. Great to be here. Is Kerry okay? That's absolutely fine. fine. No one calls me Caredwin. That's my full name. Only when I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> now, I am in the, the presence, I should acknowledge from the start here, of two very intelligent uh, scientific minds. And uh, you should both know you are in the presence of a very undeveloped scientific mind today as we discuss science and faith. Intelligent Um, nonetheless, Don. Intelligent nonetheless. (laughs) Uh, Well, look, thank you so much. Uh, I will take that compliment as undeserved as it is. Um, my, My last experience with science was when I dropped it at the end of year 10. So shame. <laughs> oh well, I, I was going to say understandable. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, look, as, as we do discuss this topic today, I am coming at it with a beginner's mind, um, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna I'm gonna make it out like that was intentional, and <laughs> we'll just go from there. Um, now you do both hold uh, PhDs in science. Can I thought that might be a good place to start? Obviously, you are both uh, Anglican uh, ministers as well. But I thought it might be good to start with your scientific backgrounds. Uh, Peter, we've heard a bit about yours on the podcast, but if you could just give a, a brief rundown, I guess, of, of your yeah, background with sure. science. Um, my PhD was in evolutionary microbiology. So I was looking at how uh, bacteria that live in, in the root nodules of wattle trees have co-evolved with their host. And so mm. I became very convinced about um, the need to look after the planet but also absolutely fascinated by the way uh, biology responds to its environment. And I carry your scientific background. Mm. Uh, yes, my my PhD is in biochemistry, in particular in the field of enzymology, which is the study of enzymes, which are the catalyst for all of the chemical reactions in our cells, living cells. And in particular, I was looking at the way that a group of enzymes work. And uh, I, I won't bore you anymore, but just to say that their, their name collectively was the purple acid phosphatases, which we shortened to PAP in the, in the laboratory. And after that, I went to work in a specialised laboratory in a large hospital here in Brisbane. And we were concerned, it was actually called Special Investigations, and we were concerned with developing tests for extremely rare genetic disorders, most of which were because enzymes were deficient or uh, not working as well, in particular metabolic pathways. So I did that for about uh, 10, 10 to 12 years. Um, and really, uh, I've always loved science. I always loved it as a child. I was one of those weird ones, Dom, so <laughs> I kept going. And... Uh, always completely in awe from a scientific point of view with the complexity and beauty of the genetic code and its translation into the proteins that the cell contains. Uh, a lot of this podcast is, um, I guess, breaking down preconceptions, and one of those would be that uh, people who study science uh, are often quite dismissive of faith, but obviously to people who are very educated in their, their scientific fields have gone on to become uh, clergy. Can I just ask uh, briefly for for both of you, I mean, Peter, again, we have discussed this in episode one of the podcast, but your movement from a scientific mind to, uh, I guess, to exploring deeper mysteries of faith, can can you run us through that a bit? I can. Um, It was actually a bit of a struggle, really, because uh, I grew up under the influence of the idea that science and religion were at odds with each other. And so the idea of... um, spirituality and mysticism was all sort of mumbo-jumbo, not provable, using the scientific paradigm, not testable, not provable, therefore doesn't exist, which is the sort of the simplistic um, approach that science can um, uh, put uh, put an overlay on life, really. So for me, it was quite a struggle, um, but eventually it was 
the idea of beauty and awe and my fascination with the beauty and awe of things in science that sort of linked it all together. But it was actually a, was a long and hard journey and um, if, only, if, if a few magic moments hadn't happened and a few meetings of the right people at the right time, I'd still be out there in, in science land and not, uh, not part of this uh, holistic approach to life, which is what I hope we'll explore more. Absolutely. In your years before you came to faith, Peter, when you were, I guess, a science student, um, would you have considered yourself quite a passionate atheist? Uh, yes, I was. I was a very good atheist, and I can still I can still pull that um, that cloak out of the drawer. And um, yeah, and and yeah, science does teach one to be sceptical and to question and to inquire. And they've become great gifts in the faith journey. But in the early days, they were seen as the enemy of the faith journey. Mm. And uh, Kerry, what about your your journey from science to faith? Well, my situation was a little different to um, Peter's. I um, was born in England and lived there for the first 10 or so years of my life. And when my parents uh, brought us to Australia... For some reason, I still don't know why, my parents decided to go to church. So from around about 10 to 17, I was, um, if you like, dragged along to church by my, my parents. And we became very involved in um, church, in the community. But at the same time, I was still very intent on, on studying science. But So it never really occurred to me that there was any problem being someone who went to church on, and and I I would say I had a faith um, and felt a strong you know had one of those what we call altar calls when I was 16 and was was actually fairly resistant to it I didn't feel that I wanted to respond to it in any way but I was always aware of God in my life and it may have been a fairly undeveloped idea the great father old man in the sky um, but when I went to university, I we were allowed to decide where, whether we wanted to continue to go go to church, and I actually decided not to go to church for many years. But that didn't mean that I didn't believe in in God. And I guess for quite a while, for about a decade, my faith was fairly dormant and not expressed while I was doing my science education. But I still never really completely broke away from the from the idea of, of, a, of a loving God, I guess. And it was only in my late 30s when I hit a few road bumps, as you do in your life, and I started to think, well, what am I doing here? What's this all about? And I started to enter a period of prayer, went back to church, um, had a real sense of consolation, and again, much to my disgust, to realise that I was actually being called to do something quite different <laughs> I certainly did not want ever thought I would be a priest so I was it was a fairly turbulent time but again there was never any sense that uh, I didn't have a faith and I didn't really see why people had a big problem with the idea that you could be a person of faith and a scientist it's interesting uh, I noticed just after I asked that question Kerry even my language was from science to faith and, mm. and that's probably a good place to start is how deeply embedded that that um, a dualism is, mm. I guess, of, of science and faith, that it's, you know, it's one or the other mm. that you believe in. And, and I, uh, I guess that idea of, um, of that conflict is, is where we should kick things off. Peter, as someone who has uh, an extensive background of knowledge in both faith and in science, what's the history of the conflict between the two? Uh, I guess in an abridged version. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, the abridged version is that uh, the conflict or the idea of the conflict is actually fairly recent. Um, you know, growing up in the 1960s and 70s, I just assumed that that's the way it always been, as we always do. You know, um, people normalise the 1950s as if it's sort of normal Australia, and yet Australia's only had one look at the 1950s and the rest of the time we've been doing something different. Um, so as I was growing up, it looked, you know, the idea was that science and religion were in conflict, but the, the idea really only arose in the middle of the 1800s. So when I was growing up, it was only a 100-year-old a idea, and it was, uh, it's called the conflict thesis, and it really um, was promulgated by a couple of 
people in the mid uh, 19th century who were one of whom was part of this new thing this new occupation called the scientist the term scientist was only coined about the same time and um, his name was John Draper and he put forward the idea that science and religion were essentially in conflict and picked picked the Darwin controversy as instead of it instead of the Darwin controversy being seen as an exceptional and new thing which it was he he normalized it he he pointed to the fact that that uh, Darwinism and and Christianity uh, were uh, two different versions of a different or pointed to two different realities um, as normative, and he was the one who basically said these things are essentially in conflict, always have been, which is a complete rewrite of history, and then that really took off, and so a lot of people have bought into that conflict idea and that's certainly how I grew up. And Kerry was that your experience as well growing up in a and I guess studying science was mm. there a, a general skepticism and, and even maybe a mocking of, of religion? Oh I'm sure there was and and I'm sure that's one of the reasons why I was quite content to not advertise too widely that I was a Christian during my university studies and why I was quite content to let my faith sort of just sit in the background and concentrate on on um, my scientific studies and and being a, you know and a young adult at a university campus and enjoying adult life. It's interesting, um, Peter, that I guess in the the same way that many debates these days are held, it does seem that in the science versus uh, religion debate that exists at the moment, the loudest voices are the fundamentalists on both sides. Mm, um, interesting, isn't and, it? Yeah, mm. and, and obviously, you know, you've got the, the fundamentalist Christians saying they represent Christianity and, mm. and you know, saying that uh, a literal interpretation of the Bible is the only truth. And then you've got the scientific uh, I guess fundamentalists uh, who say that the, the the facts and the scientific process is the only truth, and, and this is I guess where we're going to move throughout this podcast is what truth is. What is truth? What? A, someone asked that question a couple of thousand years ago, yes. and it's it's probably one of the most vital questions <laughs> of our time, given given all of the talk about fake news and fake mm, this and fake that. You, so you know, <laughs> what is truth is probably one of the key questions mm. of our time. So yeah. from a scientific background, how does, uh, as a general rule, how does science understand truth? I'm not sure they would actually, well, they might use the word truth or this is true. It is very much a an observation, measurement, hypothesis, or you actually start off with a hypothesis about something. Usually, sometimes it's an hypothesis that is widely accepted in the scientific world. And using that sort of general framework, if you like, philosophical framework, then you would design experiments to to test or to to stretch the knowledge of that hypothesis and from the results of that from the data then you would either you know you would you would generate additions to a hypothesis or in some cases you may even question a um, a long-held hypothesis and science moves moves that way what I find interesting these days is I have actually heard scientists, you know, practicing scientists, because I am no longer a practicing scientist, use use the words. Um, they're being a lot more humble about what what they say. Well, this is this is what it is. What this is what happens, and so this is how this thing must work. They're using words like in our laboratory, this is how the experiment works, and that says to me that that scientists themselves are starting to be a little bit more cautious about what they think is happening. Uh, they're mm. not assuming this word truth or this is the only way. They're, they're, they're actually acknowledging that that it is uh, uh, a little bit, not not arrogant, but it's, it's bound to be uh, challenged. Um, so I, I find that very heartening in a way that even in in the kind of experiments that scientists do and the observations and the hypotheses and conclusions that they make that there is starting to be a, a general appreciation that this is this is only a temporary measurement 
it's you know it's it's a work in progress everything is a work in progress so uh, an embracement of the complexity almost mm. in the the, mm. the an element of mystery which i know peter is a word that you use regularly in association with faith the mystery of faith mm. um a mystery that can't be completely uh summed up by evidence so so if if that's what truth is in a scientific background an evidence based mm. thing formulas and 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 research um, Peter, what what are other concepts of truth? How else can truth be defined? Um, and I, I, that's a great question. Um, tr- truth is is uncovered in all sorts of ways. Um, humans uncover or point to truth or allude to truth. Often, sometimes we're only only looking with a sidelong glance. We can't always um, really eyeball it. We, we capture it in all sorts of ways. We capture it through poetry, we capture it through art, we capture it through narrative. Um, and yet there's this tendency, um, which the interesting thing is that, is, is that literalism is really a product of the scientific paradigm. And that, that fundamental scientists and fundamentalist Christians, if you like, or literalist Christians, are really operating out of the same idea, that, that truth... Truth is like truth, and truth is equal to history. Say mm. so. The argument over the creation stories only occurs if one decides that something to be true, something has to be historical. And so we've lost, or or in the literal world, we've lost that idea that you can discover truth through metaphor or through narrative. And that's really a product of the scientific paradigm, which was basically saying it has to be it has to be touchable, it has to be handleable, it has to be dissectable for it to be true. Mm. And so at the same time as Draper was saying, you know, science and religion are in conflict, uh, religion was concretizing that which had been so preciously explored in all sorts of other ways. So we used to we used to talk about the and we still we we still, many of us, still talk about, say, the role of scripture um, being read in four ways. You can read it as you can read it literally, so you you read it as you know, sort of straight up and down. But you can also read it as metaphor and analogy, and and so there are different ways of reading it. And a story can be true um, without um, being historical. Mm. So when I go to schools, one of the exercises, and it works like clockwork every time. It's, it's like it's scripted. I, I walk into a class and will say, to, and it's often, often a class of boys in year 11, and I'll say to them, are you familiar with the story of the emperor's new clothes? And there'll be some bright spark who'll be in very quickly and will say, no, it's not true. It is not a true story. And I'll say, so... Why do you say that that story is not true? And the argument will come, well, it didn't happen. There wasn't an emperor. There wasn't a little boy to say the emperor's got no clothes on. None of it happened. Therefore, it's not true. And I say, I understand that it's not historical, but my question was, is the story true? And there's always some other kid who sort of sitting off to the side very sort of timidly will put up his hand and say, well, I think it could be true in that it tells us about human nature. It captures something about who we are. And through that story, we have to face something about ourselves. Mm-hmm. That we are, we do have a tendency to go along with the crowd. We have a tendency to believe what we're told by power and that it takes only takes one person who's brave enough and often the marginalised person who says, look, the emperor's got no clothes on and everyone goes, oh. And so I say to them, so is the story true? And it is. It's a true story even though it's not historical. Mm. Which means when you're coming to deal with you know, texts that cause us to be in great conflict with each other in terms of science and religion, like say the creation stories, which were the ones where, which were the stumbling block for me, um, I can now say that the... Both of the creation stories in the Bible, because there are two very different ones, and some are, some people argue there are actually three, but there are two very different stories that don't harmonise, but they're both true, even though they're different. Mm. But neither of them is history, because science tells us that, or suggests, 
that the history is very different. And you know, to, to affirm Kerry's point, um, the humility of science these days is that science only ever comes up with theories now. So we have the theory of evolution. Hmm. We have the theory of the Big Bang. We, we've given away in science the idea that there's a law. So there used to be Boyle's law and the hmm. law of gravity, and which was sort of so the idea that we have discovered exactly how the universe works. Now scientists say we have a theory about how the universe works. So there are multiple versions of the of the theory of evolution, for instance, mm. where people are testing each other in this dance. So science has become more of a dance. It's become less literal. Mm. And the invitation to religion is to also escape the uh, scientific paradigm and become less literal. Mm. Enjoy the use of narrative and symbol. I mean, that's partly why I'm in the, in the tradition that I am, is that we uncover truth through beauty and symbol and music and you know, in the midst of all of that we encounter something that's truer than true but can't be put into words but feels like it's truer than true and it's that which transforms us. So we're transformed by beauty and truth. Hmm. Well, Kerry, I, I might throw that, that at you now because it's, it's interesting uh, hearing Peter talk about you know, these different definitions of truth, the different yes. ways of viewing truth. You know, yes. your uh, working life would have been quite stark coming from, a, I guess, a, a life as a working scientist mm. into mm. being a, a minister, into being a priest. Well, I always remember one particular comment. It was I went to see my GP about something and we used to have some interesting discussions because his father was a Presbyterian minister and I would have said he was fairly antagonistic towards faith but he was a lovely man and he was recounting an experience he'd had as a medical student where for a year he had gone to work in a laboratory here in Brisbane that was that was located in one of the major hospitals and it was a year's work which gave him an extra qualification apart from his medical um, degrees. And he said, you know, the scientists there, they're crazy. I said, well, why do you say that? He said, well, you know, at exactly when the, when the, sun's, when the sun is setting, those who can will stop what they're doing and they'll walk out into the hallway and they'll, they'll stand at the plate glass window and look at the sun setting because most scientists, you know, were working 12-hour days. So he said they – and they just stand there and they watch the sun setting. He said, they're crazy. And I said to, to my GP, I said, I think that's the most wonderful story I've heard in a long while mm. because it told me that these people, these scientists, who you would think were living in a world that was entirely enclosed in a small laboratory 12 hours a day, they – saw something extraordinarily valuable in stopping what they were doing and who, you know, the ones that, that, that could quite, quite um, uh, that, could, that could actually halt something and take the time for a few minutes to go out and watch the beautiful sunset. So I, and I also remember talking to a retired professor of mathematics who had a strong faith and he said, oh, look, I can see the, the, the mathematical... Uh, rhythms that I've seen in my work, I can see them in nature and, and I just find it extraordinary to see this kind of uh, wonder around me. And I said, well, if that's the case, why don't more mathematicians believe in God? And he said, oh, well, we're in the closet. We just don't like the language that we're hearing from I'm, I'm guessing from a fundamentalist Christian point of view. So I I think that that um, just because you're a scientist, I, I I don't think means that that. In fact, I actually think it means it may open you up to a sense of wonder. Um, and maybe we need as Christians to find a language that um, that these people, you know, who maybe are conflicted or don't think they should have a faith, actually can understand and and connect with. Mm. I think um, uh, for, from just conversations I've had on this matter previously, there seems to be a belief that maybe science uh, doesn't openly embrace awe and beauty and religion doesn't openly embrace critical thinking. And, uh, <laughs> That's why we're Anglicans. Yeah, yeah, very, Actually, yeah, absolutely. I do remember one of the first conversations I had with you, Peter, um, when, I, when I met you and you mentioned that one of the keys to the Anglican tradition was reason. 
Mm. Yes. Um, that, mm. that you you mm. couldn't remove reason from the process. Yes. Which is um you know very scientific you know in a, in a lot of ways because reason I guess underpins science as well. It sure does. Mm. Um, and I guess uh, Richard Hooker was the person who added the idea of. Uh, reason to he who or created the three legged stool as it's called with uh, scripture tradition and reason in dialogue and i guess he's a he's a product of the time that was understanding that reason was important and uh it's one of the things that attracts me uh to faith is the the idea that i am allowed to think mm. and explore and question and that that doubt is a gift um mm. doubt is a doorway to uh extra opportunity you know, on on doubting thomas sunday the sunday after uh easter i'm always inspired by the story of doubting thomas because he was the one who was invited to touch mm. the other yeah the, the others the others all in. saw and went <laughs> oh yeah okay whereas he he said i doubt this and he was given the invitation to touch whether he went through with the touch <laughs> is not in the text which is one of the beautiful things about about the narratives is that they have so many holes in them that they actually leave those sort of things open for us. And so people you know, um, condemn doubting Thomas, but I think it's one of the mm. great gifts. And, and doubt is doubt, and you know, doubt and faith are in a in a great dance. And the the more one pursues doubt, the more one finds um, new opportunities and you know, new doorways open. Every doubt, every doubt, if it's pursued, is a gift. Um, so yes, and reason is part of that. So one, you know, one looks at a story and says, "I, you know, it's, 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 as I say to people, you, you look at a story like the walk, Jesus walking on the water, and and the reasonable part of yourself says, I can't even come at that. You know, gravity, surface tension, all of that doesn't work. Um, but then, you know, having having faced that and asked that and said that, one can then ask the question. Yes, but what can this story say to me? Mm. Go, go beyond with you know. Use the reason, express the doubt, and then go beyond all of that to ask. Okay, so what does this, what does this story gift me with? And I don't have to worry about the detail. So, do you think maybe there's a like? Is there a difference between I guess this open-minded doubt that you're talking about and embracing that doubt? And um, maybe the scepticism that we see from a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, fundamentalists on both sides, that both might be saying, I'm not sure, or, you know, the, the facts aren't exactly there, but one is taking that as an invitation to see what you can learn from it, regardless of the facts, whereas the other shuts down the argument straight there. Yeah, well, I, well my, my belief is that uh, if... You come at everything at faith, at, at everything that you're experienced with, with the idea that there's only two choices, the right or wrong. Um, you are really living a barren life and it's not the abundant life that I think Jesus talks about in the Gospels. And so I, um, for me, being being a trained sceptic, if you like, in the field of science, I actually yeah, think of that as a great gift that I bring to any theological thinking um, that I, and part of the reason why I'm very comfortable in the Anglican tradition is that it doesn't, it does encourage that questioning and, and scepticism. So I'm always sad when I encounter a thought that you can only have two answers to a question that it's, it's either right or wrong I, I think mm. that's a very diminished way of thinking and of living I guess that that ties us back to this truth conversation that that truth has to be one concrete thing um, rather than layered and rather than complex um, it's it's an interesting, I guess, concept in general, Peter, because I think there'd be a, a lot of people out there who would say, touching on, for example, the parables of uh, that Jesus told, that these are maybe insightful, that these are great metaphors in a lot of ways, but truth is still inherently linked with literalism, isn't it? it like in terms of the way the Western world sees truth, it is hand in hand with what is, it's literal truth. Literal truth is the only truth that people seem willing to embrace. And, and that's a Western problem, and it's part of the poverty of the Western culture, I have to say, is that we've developed a utilitarian culture 
which is basically things that are only only good if they're useful and and by useful we've got this very narrow definition of it and it's 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 a way of uh, understanding life that's even infecting things like our understanding of old age and the euthanasia debates getting all caught up in that and one day illness. we can do an illness and we can do we we can do it a podcast one day about euthanasia because that's mm. a really interesting area to explore um, and we've we've actually turned we've actually developed a form of barrenness because we have so literalized stuff and re- and it's reductionism it's re- you know it's reductionism it's util- utilitarianism um, we face it in things like the idea of wilderness you know, a wilderness area is only good if you can put a car park in it whereas you know, the idea that the the world should just be allowed to exist and get on with itself is is foreign to our understanding of life, and everything's got to be reduced to efficiency and to purpose. It's sort of the neoliberal paradigm gone berserk. You know, people talk about political correctness going berserk, which I have not seen any sign of, but I can see neoliberalism has infected uh, this idea, and it's it's a it's a simplified idea of what science is on about. Mm. As Kerry has said, you know, there's all these scientists that see awe and wonder and beauty in what they do and they stop to enjoy sunsets and they're not just in their heads thinking the world is black and white. Um, and and the, the actual the application of science is far richer than that, but the, the simplistic um, scientific paradigm has sort of reduced us to this very narrow, impoverished way mm. of living. Mm. So, Kerry, when the, I guess, the the culture we live in uh, only opens us up often to literal truth, you could have to make quite a conscious effort to go beyond that. Um, how do we take those, uh, I guess, steps? How do we, we try to, as you've said before on the podcast, Peter, stand in, I think, in a different, was it a different stream you said? Stand in a different area to, to view differently. How, how do you, I guess, get away from literalism? Oh gosh, <laughs> I'm not sure I, I would ever. Uh, well, I would, I would, I'd hope I go to my my deathbed never really knowing how to do it. I think being uh, exposing yourself to uh, different uh, cultures, to to music, to poetry, to uh, reading, uh, different. Uh, there, there are so many resources out there for you to explore uh, mm. life and how other other people view life so my answer would would go and explore go and discover what what riches other people uh, from other faiths from other cultures from other traditions uh, in even in within the Christ- christian tradition we've got um, a plethora of of different uh, expressions of faith that can be wonderfully enriching um, and so I think the world is out there to explore. So I would say to anyone, regardless of, of how old you are, uh, go out and, and discover and e- expose yourself to something different. So then perhaps is... is Which is the, difficult. Is the interesting paradigm, Peter, maybe more about um, instead of religion versus science, it's it's actually more of a literalism versus... Uh, what 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 is literalism? Go. What's the other? I guess the opposite of literalism. Uh, complexity. Complexity. Yes. Literalism. Complexity, complexity and richness of life. And I, see, the thing is, I think inherently we actually do the latter. It's sometimes we just get a little bit caught up in our own heads and think and think life simplistically, but but in reality, that's not how we live our lives. Like if you take a purely um, incisive scientific approach to to love, for instance, you can you can reduce love to uh, a, a sort of a highly defined sex drive and the need for the selfish gene to perpetuate perpetuate itself, and you can sort of live with that in your head as uh, as an idea. But the reality is, is that's not what you experience in your life. You don't go home to the family that you love and to the partner that you love and say, oh, he, here I am expressing my modified sex drive. I mean, <laughs> you know, you actually feel something, you feel something very different. Mm. And 
we are always entering into ways of uncovering truth. I mean, we go to the movies and we watch Star Wars and Wonder Woman and, you know, totally, total fantasy, but at the same time recognising deep truths in those stories, which is what attracts us to them. Mm. So we take ourselves off to the movie and we read novels and we don't, we don't spend the whole time reading a novel saying, this didn't happen, <laughs> this isn't true, this never happened, this person is, didn't really go on the train and see that. We enter into the story world, we encounter it as true and real and we get, we get inspired by it, we get challenged by it, we get formed by it. So I think part of it is just understanding that that some of the stuff we're being told about uh, life and some of the public discourse um, simply needs to be reconnected to the way we really live. Mm. And I think uh, when you hear real-life stories, that's one of the things that actually begins to challenge that way of looking at life. Well, it was interesting uh, doing some research uh, for this podcast. I, I looked up, I guess, some of the more prominent uh, in terms of a popular sense, uh, scientists in the world today, um, who all have some pretty interesting sceptical thoughts when it comes to faith. Just reading out a few quotes, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, this is why religions are called faiths collectively, because you believe something in the absence of evidence. That's what it is. That's what's called faith. Otherwise, we would call all religions evidence. Uh, Stephen Hawking, there is a fundamental difference between religion, which is based on authority and science, which is based on observation and reason. Science will win because it works. And uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Uh, Peter, it seems that the 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 entire, uh, the prominent theme in the Western world we're living in only is interested in literalism. How much have we lost? Well, that's, we have lost a lot. And um, the thing is, I suspect if you sat down with those people and explored the, you know, a complex understanding of faith, um, that they they would have to give some ground because, you know, like Stephen Hawking, 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 Stephen Hawking saying that religion is based on authority mm-hmm. is is, a, is is actually not true. Mm. It's actually based on experience. Yeah. Which can actually be called data and evidence yes, if you really yeah, want to, yes, that's to right. get down to yes, it. Yes, that's right. And so, you know, most people of faith are people who have had some encounter with mystery and beauty. And there are a lot of people out there who have had similar encounters who don't use religious language to describe it, but it's actually part of who they are. And they're not just about facts. They're about a holistic approach. to The facts are very important. And in our time, with some of the conversations that are going on about fake stuff, um, fact and truth are actually very important. But there's actually a lot more to who we are. Things that make us human are not just being able to think. A robot can think in that sort of logical way. Being human is about entering into a complexity of relationship and story and and enjoying beauty and you know, even even the fact that we eat the way we eat shows that we're into complexity. Mm. You know, you watch a dog, a dog will eat the same meal every day, every day, day in, day out, and in fact does better if you do that. Human beings have this amazing approach to food which is adventurous and creative and serves no other purpose than it makes us full of joy and wonder. and So that you know, being human is a very rich experience. It's very beautiful. And faith is part of that. Mm. And, and it's not about faith versus reason. It's, well, it's actually interesting because later on in that Richard Dawkins uh, article I was reading, this, this interview, um, he did say, if there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian of any religion has ever proposed. 
which is what a lot of all the exactly. theolo- all the, theolo- all the theologians <laughs> say. Yes, and even I think there's a there's a there's something in Isaiah, isn't it, about my ways yeah, are unfathomable. Yeah, it's right, right. so it's yes. been said for a long, long yes. time. No, I think I, I think, think he's spot on. It's probably one yes. of the wisest theological <laughs> statements I've heard, and I'm going to quote it. <laughs> Yes. Richard Dawkins, because he's correct. That's exactly, exactly right. That's why we talk about mystery. Mm. And I, th- I think that's that's so fascinating. Is that the I guess the God he's disagreeing with is probably a God, Peter, that you would disagree with. Absolutely, but it's, exactly. it's the God. It's the God that's been created out of the scientific paradigm, which mm. is is a reductionist mm. reductionist approach to God. And as Kerry said, you know, there's that idea of God being the old man in the sky, mm. and um, the great time or watchkeeper or yes, watchmaker yes, or whatever. Yeah, and so you know, come and come and have a conversation would be my invitation because this is a much richer, more confusing mm. and complex world and area than um, than those who just lock it down. Kerry, when you, you I guess you start to delve into the, the different layers of truth and the um, metaphor versus fact, poetry versus reason, uh, and I, I hate that I even use the word verse there, but but poetry and reason, let's say. Mm. Um, is there a danger of, I guess, losing uh, a, a, a solid place to stand? And is that a bad thing in terms of sometimes you can lose your grip a little bit, you can lose your grounding? Or, or do you think the invitation is to fully delve in? Oh, well... To lose your ground, to lose a sense of, of foundation can be very, it is very scary for for all of us. Uh, so I, I think it would be almost impossible for someone to live completely in a, a loose, groundless existence. I don't think we can without going insane. So I think we all want our structure, our foundations to be fairly as solid as, as they can be. I think the the invitation from faith is that is the opportunity to maybe gently knock some of those foundations now and then mm-hmm. and then discover that that maybe the foundation is not quite as solid as we thought and uh, that we're exposed to something new as as peter has said there is this this sense of of wonder and beauty and awe and and uncertainty and doubt which I think is extremely healthy but we do resist it I think it's a, a, a natural tendency to try and be safe but I, I think for me it's it's actually um, it's it's healthy to to just try and live with a little bit of, of doubt um, every now and then I used to describe sometimes a journey of faith for me was like leaping off a, a platform every now and then into darkness and not really knowing what was going to happen. But but there was never, you know, in the end, after a few times of doing that, it, there was a sense, well, what's going to happen now? What am I going to discover? And it, it became, I became more uh, confident that, that there, were, there was going to be something to catch me. And I guess I call that God. Yeah. So it's yeah. So I think a little bit. I, I think most people can't live with too much uncertainty, and um, but we we also can't live with too much certainty. Uh, yeah, I love that. That's that's great. Um, P- Peter, there, is is there a risk? I guess of uh, you know, if you start saying some things aren't literally true, and we we look for other layers of truth that you can continue to, to question and to query everything. And, you know, so some uh, Christians have had this debate with, say, you know, so if you start with a point by saying the creation stories aren't literally true, that they're metaphor, then you move on to other parts of the Bible aren't literally true, literally true they're metaphor. And then the question comes up, well, the resurrection, is that literally true or is that another metaphor? And suddenly you can start finding yourself almost... Um, I guess struggling to find out where you stand on on anything at all is that is that a risk or do you not think that's as dangerous as maybe it, as some people think it is? I think it's a huge opportunity rather than a risk <laughs> um, because it you know at the heart at the heart of all of this is the idea that there's a faithful God and 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 my um, my one of my essential beliefs is that truth is robust. And 
So yes, you do go into that space and you do ask that question even about the resurrection. And um, you know, I couldn't tell you, I, could, I can say that I believe in the resurrection. I think the resurrection is a, is a transformative moment in history. In fact, it's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the new creation coming to birth. There's a whole new world coming to birth in that moment. But if you ask me to describe what it is in scientific terms, which is one of the, I think, one of the traps that the church has fallen for, um, then I'm, I'm actually going to decline to even go into that territory. Because for me, it is more important than some sort of bunch of facts. Like for me, if, if, if tomorrow the uh, Jewish um, Department of Antiquities uh, reveals that they have the bones of Jesus that will not destroy my mm. belief in the resurrection. Mm. That's fascinating because for a lot of people that would be, their, their entire faith system would crumble yeah, because, upon that discovery. That's right. Because, yes, that's right. And I suspect that's because, again, we've fallen into scientific ideas of, um, you know, is resurrection equal to resuscitation or is it something completely new? Hmm. Is it something completely new? And so it's like science Science should be completely neutral about the resurrection because the claim of the resurrection is that it's one-off. And science doesn't deal with one-offs. <laughs> science can't deal with one-offs. It's, one it's one of the philosophical boundaries of the scientific paradigm is that it can't actually deal with claims about the one-off. So a true scientist who understands the philosophical yeah. framework of being a scientist will hear the claim of the resurrection and say, I cannot explore that claim. Mm. Not that it's not true or it's no, I don't believe. I just can't. That, uh, a true scientist will say, I cannot explore that claim because science is not capable of going into that territory. Because science is great, but it is bounded by its philosophical framework, which means that it works well in a very small part mm. of life. Under and a certain set of conditions. conditions. That's right, that's right. And it gets itself into trouble when it overclaims for itself. Similarly, religion gets into trouble when it overclaims for itself. Religion mm. is fantastic. Explores all sorts of things to do about purpose and why we are and who we are and who we are in terms of the global, uh, the big story, the story of God and the story of the universe. But sometimes it goes and thinks it can play in the scientific sandpit and it will always lose in that sandpit because philosophically it doesn't belong there just like science doesn't belong in the religion sandpit but they both belong we belong in both of them humans belong in both sandpits mm. and there are interconnections between the sandpits um, but they are they are philosophically separate so you know scientists will just hear the story of the resurrection and say well there you go not not my territory to explore. So it's not a one or the other no, approach. It's not, not a one or another approach. You, because I guess if you spend all your time in one sandpit, you're yeah. missing out on the other. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. That's right. exactly. And and you know the resurrection is far too important for it to be reduced to whether the bones of Jesus exist or not. Because it's mm. a total transformation. So it's, can you unpack that a little more? <laughs> well, I'm not sure I can because I've just, I've just, I've just, I've just said it's about this amazing mystery. Mm. You know, the, res the resurrection, in terms of the tr Christian tradition, the resur resurrection is claimed to be the first day of the new creation. So it's really uh, an invitation to live in a completely different way, a completely different way, and in, in first and foremost, it's about social transformation. Mm. So the community, the only community um, that experienced the resurrection, the Easter people, said we, get, we have to live in a completely different way. Mm. Which is why in you know, the early, early sort of summaries of what that meant were things like, you know, in Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, uh, Jew or Gentile. They were the three most significant divisions of humanity that existed in those times. Between men and women, 
slave and free, Jew and Gentile. They were the three biggest separators. Mm. And the early church said, all of those things have disappeared with this new creation. We live a completely different life. We live as if they're not men and women to be in opposition to each other. The other thing was the sharing of money. Yeah, sharing of money. Which, yes, is, right. which is something we, that's right. <laughs> we you have want, great problems Do you want with. to be literal? Yes. Yeah, yeah that's, that's often what I say. Well, have you sold everything? Yeah. Yeah. People <laughs> say, do you believe in literal? Well, have you sold everything? And, yeah. and you, is, is anyone in need <laughs> yes, right. in our world? Yes. Yeah, so shouldn't be. there's this completely new way of living that this group of people caught, caught the vision for because of whatever happened on Easter Day. And for me, that is the significant thing. I'm not really interested in arguing about what the resurrection was or, more importantly, is. Because, you know, in our liturgy, we say Christ has died, past tense. Christ is risen, and it's a continuing uh, future perfect. It, it means that the resurrection continues on into the future. Because otherwise we say Christ has died, Christ has risen, which some people do say. But it's theologically is that the resurrection continues mm. because this new way of living has taken control of us, has invited us into a completely new world. And so it's got, you know, the idea of arguing about whether the bones are there or whether it was the body or a body or a spiritual body, I mean, that is just deflection stuff. Because that means that we don't spend mm. our time working on how do we overcome the idea of no male and no female, no slave and free, no you know no Christian, no Muslim. I mean, you know, if you want to ask what it means for today, you ask, well, so what are the three equivalent big divisions of humanity today that disappear in this, and are called to disappear mm. in this new world? So you know, my thing is when the church when the church ordained women twenty something years ago, we got back to first base. Right. We got back. To, you know, the early church knew it, mm. and said there wasn't this gender divide, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the early church lived beyond the gender divide. Mm. We lapsed back into it for the best part of two thousand years, and in the late twentieth century, get back to first base. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. So we haven't even dealt with, you know, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. We've actually got into male and female. Woo! You know, it's a two thousand year project to get to first get to back to first base. Mm. So we, 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 and we think we're smart. And we think we're smart. And so when you think that the project is that big, why would you spend your time arguing about whether the bones are there or not? <laughs> yeah, wow. I I think also for me that the appearance of of the risen Jesus with the the wounds of the crucifixion still there uh, for me say that the the resurrection is about how we live now you know it's about what we're doing now that matter actually matters you know earth mm. earth matters so so as yeah the invitation is what what are we doing now in the world around us it's it's so interesting I could not agree more and I do know people who would sit here still even hearing that and still want to query want to question the literal do you know what i mean even in the invitation of the deeper of more complex they would still say but the literal truth of it is what matters and i that's well, okay and, and i say that's cool I mean, that's why it's it's like science and religion, um, creation versus evolution. I try not to enter into those. Um, I don't. I don't want to play that game anymore. Mm. I used to. I used to have lovely fun <laughs> being on one side of that great divide. I've decided I don't want to live in that space anymore, and so I don't actually have that argument anymore. So if someone, if someone comes to me and says, "I believe that the creation is seven took." place in seven days four and a half thousand years ago i say great but what does what does that do for you how does that transform your life because that's the question I'm, I'm not interested in arguing about whether the world you know in the face of a whole bunch of evidence if people want to accept that it's four and a half thousand years old that's great but my question is how does that transform your life the same with the resurrection if someone wants to 
say that yes, that was the you know, the bones disappeared and the bone whatever's you know, whatever happened to the risen ascended Christ means that the bones were part of that. Then cool. But how does that touch your life, and how how does that introduce you to the project where there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew mm. or Gentile, and what are the equivalent divisions of humanity in our day? that we should be saying, these things do not exist. Because mm. that's what they were saying. These things do not exist. And then they lived as if they didn't. So our call for us is, these things do not exist, so how are we going to live as if they don't? There, right. there is quite often the comment made, isn't it, that Christianity actually needs to, needs to go back 2,000 years. <laughs> 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 so Kerry, I guess then a, a, a belief in the resurrection, a belief in the truth of the resurrection is so much greater um, and so much more complex, I guess, than whether a human body rose, uh, rose from being dead. Um, that almost summing it, uh, bringing it just to that is robbing so much of of the truth that's actually hidden within the resurrection. Would you agree with that? Oh, most definitely, most definitely, and. Listening to to what Peter was saying, I I had the you know the thoughts in my head. Well, is also is it is it an easy way to deflect what should be the important questions, which are going to be so so uncomfortable for us when we really unpack them? You know, what are the divisions? Mm. Who is being who is being marginalised and oppressed, and who is in need today? They're 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 the questions I believe that that Jesus was asking everybody who followed him what you know and and challenging those divisions i think they're they're much more difficult and so for me if if you're just really hung up on this i want a literal understanding i want the right answer then it's almost you're instinctively def- deflecting away from being asked to really do the the hard stuff which for me is about how do we live in this world uh, how do we live a resurrected life so um and a lot of us are not ready to move on to it is it is extraordinarily uncomfortable when you when you see how well we live in in Australia today uh, and yet there are people in our society who are not living well mm. and uh, around the world who are living even you know more impoverished lives and uh, what are we doing um, so P- Peter why are we so interested in the face of the depths of truth that are clearly uh, in plain sight, hidden in plain sight, why are, are we as a culture still so interested in literal debates and why do we keep getting stuck there? Well, we, we like a good fight. We like, we like the idea of dualism, which is one of the uh, areas we've explored before. That We mm. actually like the idea of being against the other. It's you know, that whole Girardian idea that we create community by being against which is why the new community is so radical, because it's saying basically the things you thought you were against or the people you were opposed to or the people you defined yourself against or opposite to, those things don't exist anymore, so what are you going to do now? Wow, we're going to have to develop a community of love and mutual respect instead. And so you know, it's quite a natural human thing is to be part of... We like a good fight. The press loves a good fight. Um, you know, you've quoted key uh, scientific figures as representing science and yet we all you know we know that there are lots of scientists out there who don't hold that sort of simplistic view but that's not going to get reported on tv um it's not going to get onto q and a you know q and a decided to look at the faith religion faith science thing by inviting george bell to talk to richard dawkins Mm. And neither, and they just basically took up their mantle of I'm in the left, uh, right corner, or the blue corner, and I'm in the red corner, and we're going to beat each other senseless for an hour. And it was the most boring piece of television I thought that I'd ever seen. Um, but that's that's what we like, and so uh, you know the fascination is is to do with how we exercise this in the public square, but in the real in the real world, um, people are actually more into complexity. It's just it doesn't get reported. It doesn't make. It's not sensational TV. I mean, you know, a scientist and a person of faith sitting down and agreeing for two hours is not going to be spectacular TV. They're just going to go, yeah, that's I think that's great too. Well, wow, isn't it lovely? You know, we both agree that life is great. That life is complex. That beauty actually matters. I mean, it's it's not going to be spectacular TV. Mm. Um, and so 
the very things that drive sort of what gets into the public spectacle and the fact that we love a good stoush and we like to define ourselves against the other means that in a sense this work is subterranean and it's to do with engagement and encountering people one by one and 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 attending to people as they're apprehended by beauty and um, affirming the stuff that they hold really deeply so um, because I know I, I count myself in this camp of people who do still struggle um, every now and then with questions of literalism that that just plague you. Maybe you, you, you find yourself thinking literally and you, you catch yourself after a while and you think, why was I caught up on that? How do you, and I, I asked you this question earlier, Kerry, uh, I think it's worth revisiting now after this mm. discussion. How do you break out of that first initial instinct to go for the literal truth, to, to stop there? How do you move beyond that? Uh, I, well, I can, I can probably give you an example um, last, which is um, probably a bit too religious, but <laughs> this is a religious podcast, so let's go for it. <laughs> last week, uh, as part of, of priest, uh, a part of my faith practice is reading the Bible. And uh, the, the readings for the evening over a few evenings last week were about the Samson about Samson and Samson and Delilah fame in in Judges and I remember reading these chapters about about Samson and and his actions and uh, and and feeling rather rather annoyed because one you know he saw a woman and went home to his parents and said get her I want her for my wife you know and 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 being a woman and a wife and <laughs> and a, and a, a feminist I found that you know incredibly offensive and then you read it on and he gets nagged to death by this first wife and and gives in and then something something happens to her I can't quite remember and then Delilah comes onto the scene and she nags him to death about um what his where his strength comes from and he won't tell her and eventually he gets so tired of her nagging he tells her and she cuts his hair off and so on and I, the whole story I was reading at the time and thinking I don't like this I don't like this this is this is rubbish he can't he can't have killed a thousand philistines with the jawbone of a donkey because at one stage he gets up and and puts and and says I have killed a thousand and then it just occurred to me this week thinking back on it oh it's actually a bit of a comedy story that the the, the 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 hearers of that story would have been killing themselves laughing about that whole episode and I thought why on earth didn't I see that when I first read it so so I I think sometimes just just thinking about uh, thinking back on what you thought about something you know why was why was I thinking that was was I trying to make it either a right or wrong or a literal mm. understanding of something and and what is it actually and and when and now I realize the story is incredibly rich it's talking about male female relationships it's talking about you know lots and lots of different things and and it was and it's funny mm. so uh, and and I get so much more enjoyment out of that story now so I think it's it's probably a matter of of discipline in a way of of thinking when you're reading something or hearing something or forming an opinion just just and then it's that skeptical part of me that says well why did you think that what who who and the, the most important question for me is who am i actually putting as the other who am i saying doesn't belong in that scenario or you know what 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 um, hypotheses or assumptions am I making about that situation? So I think it's, for me, it comes down to, to being aware of how I think and the assumptions I make and every now and then nudging those or, or and I, I call it God, you know, God mm. nudging me about what's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I think the other thing to consider is that we need to understand where our foundations are you know, as Kerry said before we don't live very well with uncertainty or or total fluidity and so part of part of what we need to be understanding is is where is our true bedrock now you know, the whole the whole literalist project is 
is a form of creating a, a type of bedrock. The mm. solidity that the scriptures, you can stand on the scriptures and, and they, will, they will stop you from falling. And there, it, it becomes a bit of a, a house of cards scenario where, as you said, you know, if, 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 if you start taking cards out of the house, those lovely house of cards that I used to build as a kid, if you, you'd start taking one, you know, start taking cards out and see if the thing would stand. Mm. And that, that's sort of the illusion that you were painting before of if you take out the creation story as being literally true and then you take out this, doesn't the whole house of cards collapse? Mm. And that's um, an invitation to ask ourselves, so where is my bedrock? Is my bedrock going to be the scriptures or is it going to be something else? So for me, for me, the bedrock is uh, are the religious experiences that I've had throughout my life that assure me I'm loved. And so for me, you know, the the sort of the essential truth, mm. if you like, is God is love. That that for me is the unshakable, because I have felt that in the depth of my being. So for me, that bedrock allows me to stand firm, if you like, and let the whole rest of it become quite fluid because I can test, I can test just about anything because I understand myself to be loved. Now, so, if my image of God was other, yeah. and there are plenty of other images, you, know, you know, some of our images of God are quite schizoid. You know, well, everyone would say they believe that God is love, and but you know, love, love. If you to un, you know, love means um, acceptance, uh, inseparable relationship. And if we believe in a God of love, but at the same time talk about the God who has a baseball bat behind their back and will smack us about the head if we don't respond in a reciprocal way, then that's not love. That's actually sort of a, a really scary sort of um, ego-tripping God. Mm. If we get God confused like that, then we're going to be looking for another sort of bedrock because the idea that God is love is not going to be enough of a bedrock mm. because this God of love might condemn me to hell. And you know, so now I've got to get it right. I've got to live right. I've got to have, believe correctly. Therefore, I have to accept the right things. I have to, and and you know, each each expression of it then comes up with its essentials. And if you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian. Yeah, we've seen that in all sorts of areas. So mm. How can you be a Christian and believe in same-sex marriage? Because you know, that's not correct belief. Right. Yeah. So if if that's where your bedrock is, then it's always going to be you're going to ha you're going to become a fundamentalist. You're going to become a literalist. You're going to put down um, a whole lot of scaffolding that means you're not prepared to explore that area. Whereas if we come back to the essential, what I think is the essential, that God is love, then you can explore everything. And discover all sorts of stuff by going into that exploratory space because you just know that God will not let you go. You know, that old-fashioned mm. hymn, Oh God, who will not let me go. So it doesn't matter if the bones of Jesus show up. It doesn't matter what the literal truth is because your no. bedrock is the that. The bedrock love. is that very simple understanding of what and who God is. And I guess that's an invitation for how much... Uh, <laughs> more fulfilling and abundant and complex a bedrock you can have as opposed to literal truth which really in comparison to that is uh well it's house it's of cards it's house of cards it's quite <laughs> dull as well isn't it it's a house of cards yes well uh this has been uh yet another conversation that i feel i've had my mind uh, comprehensively blown. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Peter. Thank you so much, Kerry. It's a uh, pleasure, Don. It, it genuinely feels like quite an honour to have these conversations as somebody who knows so little. So thank you so much. Um, but it's been a, a pleasure to chat with both of you and we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.